What's up, Red Rocks Church? It's a good-looking bunch, man. I'm sure at every campus, you guys are equally as good-looking. In fact, let's do this. Let's welcome every campus. Uh, Evergreen, we love you. Mostly, we're a little jealous because it's like 10 degrees cooler up there, but we still love you. We welcome you. Uh, Arvada, nothing but love for you. Lakewood and, of course, Littleton uh, got nothing but love for you. And this is so important that every week that we make sure that all the men and all the women at our God Behind Bars locations feel so honored and so welcome. So can you welcome them with me? We love you guys. Absolutely love you guys. Such a privilege that we get to worship with you um, week in and week out, and we do not take that um, for granted. I say this all the time, and I'm unapologetically going to start um, this service off again by praying. And, and, and I want you to know, especially if you're visiting, if you're new to this church, I want you to know the heartbeat of this church. And one of the things that we know that we know that we know, according to not only the scriptures, but just according to, to looking around and seeing how life in the church plays itself out, is that I, I'm going to get up here, and I'm going to give you everything that I got, and I'm going to preach, and I love preaching, and, and God gave us preachers for a reason and and our worship bands at all of our campuses man I love them so much and they're going to sing their absolute best but you must always understand this especially if you're new with us please know our hearts we can't preach good enough and we can't sing good enough for your heart to be transformed more into the image of Christ you understand that right now, we can, we can act as middlemen, but the, the only person that has the power to transform a human heart is the power of God through the person of the Holy Spirit, okay? And so when we pray, we don't just do it liturgically or we don't just do it out of ritual. When we pray before the message, what I'm hoping happens is we're cultivating a presence for the Holy Spirit to feel welcomed and the Holy Spirit to feel honored because I know he's our only hope, Right? And so can we do that at all campuses before we go any further? Can we just stop? And no matter what you walked in here with, can we just kind of calm our hearts? And can we just call out to the Holy Spirit? And can we let him know that he is welcome here and that he is honored? Heavenly Father, I just thank you for every single person at every single campus that represents the local church, Red Rocks Church here in Denver, God. And I'm asking now, God, out of your absolute grace that your word says you want to lavish on us, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak. Holy Spirit, the word says that, that, that you got sent to encourage us, to counsel us, to convict the world of sin, to comfort us. God, some people walk in all campuses and deeply need comfort. Would you do that, Holy Spirit? And my favorite thing about you, Holy Spirit, is your job is to point us to the person and the work and to amplify the work of Jesus Christ in our lives so that we can walk and think and act and breathe more like Jesus every day. So Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. And we honor you. And we say, take charge and take the lead. And we will follow. And it's in your name we pray. And everyone said at all campuses. Amen. We're in week two of a series that we have titled Birthright. And if you're visiting with us, what we're doing is we're spending the next six weeks in Ephesians chapter one. We could literally spend 20 weeks and not do justice to the amount of implication and the grand statements about God and about his son, Jesus Christ, and about the Holy Spirit that are in Ephesians chapter one. If you guys missed last week, I, I kind of said if, if we as Americans have the U.S. Constitution as our guiding principles and our covenant as a country. And you know, the U.S. Constitution has this really short but really sweet and powerful thing called the preamble. It's like this pre-statement that is just, it's short and it's sweet, but it is power-packed with statement after statement after statement. And in those statements in the preamble are magnificent implications about our nation, right? 
And, and I said, we're, we're a part of an even greater kingdom. As good as America is, we're a part of the kingdom of God and our constitution is called the New Testament. And I would put Ephesians 1 against any other chapter in the New Testament if I was voting for what I thought the word should say in our preamble. Ephesians 1 is short and sweet in light of the New Testament, but it is power packed with incredible implication. And if I could boil down all of Ephesians 1 every week into just one simple statement that we could all understand and be blessed by, it would be the same thing that I quoted last week from a pastor friend of mine down in Dallas. And it is this, a guy named Matt Chandler says, God is not in love with a future version of you. And each week that we, we repeat that, I don't want to pass over it too quickly because what a magnificent statement. And with all of this deep and rich theology and with all these incredibly uh, amazing statements that are made in Ephesians 1, ultimately what Paul is trying to say is simply, listen, God is not in love with the future you. He's not in love with you 2.0. Now, here's the deal. Is God committed to a future version of you? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why he's still, even though the work for our salvation is completely finished, that's why he's still purging us of things. That's why he's still sanctifying us through and through and through. That's why he doesn't quit on us. That's why we're still being discipled is because God, God does care about a future version of you. But it's not so you can prove something to him. And it's not so that you can earn something in his presence. Do you know what it's for? Every time God works in your heart, every time God's trying to purge you of something, every time God disciplines us, every time we're being discipled by God through people and his word, the one motive is really simple. John 10, 10, he wants more life for you. That's why Jesus came, that you may have life and have it to the fullest. But you, I want us for six straight weeks to just rest in the fact that God is not in love with some future version of you. He's in love with you right here and right now. So I wanna continue reading Ephesians chapter one. Paul, the apostle who writes it says this. This is our preamble, Red Rocks Church. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and here's the first birthright we talked about last week, to the saints who are in Ephesus and Evergreen and Arvada and Littleton and Lakewood and a God behind bars, he says, are the faithful in Christ Jesus. And then his first thing to them, I love the first word out of his mouth of this is grace. He says, grace to you. And then the second word is equally incredible. He says, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing or birthright in the heavenly places. Even as, and now we get to week two, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be, and here's week three, holy and blameless before him. In love, God predestined us for adoption, that'll be week four, as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace, I love that, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In Jesus Christ, Red Rocks Church, we have redemption through his blood, that is some good news. And we have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to not just the grace, but here it is again, the riches of his grace. And I love this, which he lavished upon us, right? We talked last week about the God who doesn't just divvy out grace with good stewardship. He makes it rain in our lives. He, he, he has an unlimited storehouse of mercy, right? Which he lavished upon us and, and he's not dumb about it. We know how dangerous grace can be because of the human heart. 
We know how prone we are to take God's grace and, and, and misuse it and mistreat it. It's been happening since the Garden of Eden, right? We know what that's like. And he still says in the midst of our potential and propensity to really use his grace for all the wrong reasons, he's still with all wisdom and insight. In other words, he's thought this through, chooses to lavish it upon you, not just divvy it out as necessary. He wants to lavish it upon you. I love that. It says, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Jesus Christ, and because of Jesus Christ is what he's saying here, we have obtained an inheritance, a birthright. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things in accordance with the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In Jesus Christ, and because of Jesus Christ, he says, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Jesus, and here's week five, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Sealed, Red Rocks Church, and here's a great word, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire full possession of it. And then he says what we should say every week after the gospel is preached. This is the most natural response to implications as awesome as this. He says, to the praise of his glory. So again, if you missed last week, we talked about the first birthright. Right out of the gates, Paul calls them saints. And you can go back and you can do some, some study on the city and the background of the church of Ephesus. And you can quickly find that there wasn't a whole lot of saint-like behavior even inside the church. And yet he calls them saint before they've done anything to earn it. Couldn't earn the title. That's what we talked about last week. There's no vetting process. There's no probationary period to be deemed a saint in the kingdom of God. It's something you get upon birth. And when I'm talking about birth, I'm not talking about childbirth. I'm not talking about natural birth from your mother, water birth. I'm talking about being born again. Jesus in John 3, 3 says, unless a man be born again, and that he's talking about being born of a spirit, spiritually born again, saved, he cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But here's the deal. The minute you are born again, you are instantaneously given what we call sainthood. That was week one. Now let's, let's look at week two. And I want to reread the, the small portion in Ephesians 1 that we'll be drawn from tonight. Paul says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then here it is. Even as he chose us. And here's what's even greater. He says, In him before the foundation of the world. That's what I want to camp on the whole rest of our time. Not just that you were chosen, that's awesome enough. If he chose you yesterday, that would be incredible, right? We'd all be fine with that. But what's said here is he didn't just choose you yesterday, right? He chose you before the foundation of the world. That means before one particle of matter, before one human cell was ever created, before any proton or neutron or even the movie-tron ever even existed. <laughs> Seeing if you're listening. Little tester. Before one plant, one animal, one mountain, one river, one ocean, or even one galaxy existed before God ever uttered the words, let there be light. Guess what the Bible just told us? He chose you. And that's crazy. Especially when you start to think about the fact that God foreknew your rebellion. 
God foreknew what Adam and Eve's decision would be in the Garden of Eden. And he knew the generational effects it would have even thousands upon thousands of years later. He knew that the minute that they, out of their free will, chose to go against his word, this thing called sin would enter the human bloodstream. And it would be this blood disease that we, his kids, would live with for an eternity unless he sent his one and only son to come and die in our place to cure us of that blood disease. He knew the heights and the depths of the darkest day of depravity you and I would ever walk in. Think of so far the absolute darkest, most depraved thing you've ever done. Men and women at God Behind Bars, I can't imagine some of the mind games you must have when you sit through these services. And I want to ease your soul and I want to ease your heart for a minute. Whatever you're behind those bars for, whatever sentence you were given, whatever crime you committed, I want you to listen to me. Before the foundations of the world, God knew every day that was ordained for you in his book, Psalms 139 says, and still said, let's do this. Let there be light. He knew every day. He knew the crime you'd commit. He knew the punishment that you'd have to sit through. And he still said, Red Rock Church, listen to me. At the height of your rebellion, whatever that's looked like in your lifetime thus far, God was not shocked when it happened. Were, were, were people around you shocked? Absolutely. Were relationships affected and destroyed and ruined and different? 100%. But God in his sovereignty has a capacity to walk in a degree of mercy over us, even at our darkest, that we as humans can't give, seem to give back to each other, right? This is how good and gracious God is. He knew ahead of time the depths of our rebellion and said, let there be light, right? He knew Jesus was necessary to redeem us out of our rebellion before that apple was even eaten and any of our sins were ever committed. It's not my word. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. The apostle Peter writes this. He, Jesus, was chosen when? Before the foundation of the world, but has revealed in these last times himself for our sake. I want to read a bit of a peculiar verse because of the first sentence, but don't let that distract you as crazy as it is because I want you to read what's next. It says this in Revelations 13, 8. It says, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. <laughs> like, what is that? What? Whole nother sermon series, and I'm not going to teach it that time. <laughs> this, this is basically saying, listen, after Christ has returned, everyone still around is going to worship the beast because we're all going to worship for an eternity. We were created to be worshipers, right? We're all going to worship something. The question is, who and what are you going to worship? He goes on to say this, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb is referred to as Jesus. He said, the Lamb who was what? Slain. When? from the creation of the world. This is just another way of the word of God saying, before God said, let there be light, be light, he completely and fully understood the depths of depravity that this planet would go to in our rebellion and all the hurt and all the pain it would cause and all the nasty and difficult and dark things that we would do to each other and all of our complacency and rebellion and denial against God. He knew all of that from every season and from every tribe and from every color and from every race on every country throughout every century. God knew everything and he still said, let there be light. Think about it. If you study the book of Colossians, it very quickly tells you in the beginning chapter that Jesus was actually the one in charge of creation. A lot of people get surprised by that fact that Jesus was actually the one speaking things into existence as God made man. And think about this. Jesus at one point spoke one of the billions of trees into existence that he would eventually die on. 
He created his own deathbed. He had that much foreknowledge about the fact that he was inevitably going to have to come and subject himself to a fallen humanity and play by humanity's laws and rules for an extended period of time and then experience an excruciatingly painful death to cure us of our blood disease called sin. He knew all of that and he said, this is how much I love humanity. This is how much I love you, is what he's saying today. And I want everyone at every campus to be able by the time you walk out of the doors of your campus to be able to receive a new degree of understanding of the beauty of the implications of that. There's this term that I really wanna coin in the clinical world for, for, for the, the, the area of psychotherapy. I really wanna coin it because I think it's legit. Stick with me here. It's called this, tell me what you think. It's called playground PTSD. Anyone know what I'm talking about? In fact, that's a dumb question. Everyone knows what I'm talking about. All of us who grew up has some degree of playground post-traumatic stress disorder, right? It's the playground. There's so many things that happen on a playground every day in such a short amount of time that have such profound impacts on the psyche and the formation of us as children, right? And what's crazy is no matter how hard we try, we parents can't do a whole lot to protect our kids fully from those dynamics. I mean, you can try and hide them and protect them, but eventually they were created to go into all the world, right? Problem is on the playground, man, in a short amount of time, there are so many moments where you're either experiencing this thing called rejection or you're experiencing this thing called acceptance. And sometimes it can happen in the same playground period, right? Think about this. Think about those moments. Maybe it was PE and you're all out in the, the playground and, and you guys are going to compete and say there's 20 kids in the class. And so the coach does this. The PE coach does this. He, he or she says, hey, I want you two to be captain. So instantly two people are someone's favorite, right? We all think now kids don't process that verbally. But at some point, whether it's very fast or for, for an extended period of time, you sit there and go, I didn't get picked. Clearly those two are something special, accepted, Rejected, 18 out of 20 kids are sitting there to some degree having that formation into their psyche, right? It's just what it is. It's playground PTSD. And it gets crazier from there because at some point then one of the two captains has to make the first pick. And only one out of 17 people, 18 people are going to be real happy. There's 17 other that have to have a whole nother conversation. Not only did the PE teacher not pick me, I didn't get first pick, which means I'm not the greatest at this. Right? And we live in America. So even if you get picked second, right? First loser, right? <laughs> if you ain't first, you're last, Ricky Bobby. That's, our, that's the nation we live in, right? Like you can't even be second in our country and it's okay. No, you're first loser, right? So you get picked second, you get picked third, and the further it just keeps going down until you get picked, that keeps saying more and more and more about you if you let it. And, and kids won't process it. They feel it. But they won't pull the teacher or the coach aside, the captain aside, go, you know, when I, when I got picked in the lower tier, I, I really affected me. And I think we need to have a Matthew 18 about this. And, you know, iron sharpens iron. And, and, and I feel like, you know, this, this rejection is toxic to the soul. And so I really wanted to get it out before it had any effect on my internal being. And so, you know, if, we could, if you could just explain to me, you know, and if we could, you know, I forgive you, but, you know, because forgiveness is power. Kids don't do that. That's just one thing. We all knew what it felt like to stand in that line before a competition and know if we got picked, right? I haven't even got to the bullies on the playground yet and what they can do to someone. I have friends that are my age in their 40s now that are still 
struggling socially and emotionally because of the effects of a bully on a playground as a kid. There is something so profoundly powerful that comes with rejection, right? And all of us to some degree in this lifetime have experienced it and will experience it on a multitude of levels for a multitude of reasons. It's inevitable. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. He could have equally said, in this world you will be rejected, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. But here's what's cool. Here's what's equally powerful as rejection is being chosen. When someone chooses, you know what it's like to make the team, right? I've made the team before, and then I've had a coach look at me and not call my name and had to sit out for a season before. I've been on both sides of it, but I know when I made that team after I was rejected from that team, there was a fuel in my spirit to want to be the best player I could because I did not take for granted that somebody saw something in me and said, I choose you. We all know what it's like to get the job when you were in a line of other people that applied for the same job. We also probably know what it's like to not get the job when you were in line with a bunch of other people. You know what it's like for a boss to go, we actually went with someone else, right? And we don't talk about it. We don't instantly, typically process rejection unless you're at an extremely high level of maturity and understand the power of it. Typically, we, we, we push it down and then we, we act out. <laughs> we don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to get rid of it, but, but we, we push it down. We know what it feels like to get the letter back that says, I'm sorry to let you know at this point that you didn't get accepted into the college. We're sorry, you're great, you're wonderful, blah, 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 blah. They give you what we talked about last week, a shame lament. They tell you a bunch of good stuff, but then you're still not getting in. You're still not in, right? But, but some of you, you, you got that acceptance letter and said, we're happy to, to, to report that you're in. And there's fuel. You go into that college, you're ready because they saw something in you that they didn't see in a bunch of other people. We know what that's like, right? Think about this. Think about when somebody gets on a knee, ladies, with seven billion people on planet Earth and says, will you marry me? Some of the single ladies are like, I want to know what that's like so bad. You don't even know. Right? Trust, it's going to happen. Name of Jesus. Right? But listen, and, 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 and ladies, you may think this is your big moment, but you know what we mentioned? Let me, let me let you in on a secret. You know what our goal is as men? To marry up. Right? So when, 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 when the person looks back at you, when my wife looked back to me and said, I'll marry you. I was like, oh my God. Like, really? Right? You thought it was your big day, and I'm sitting there going, no, no, no. When my wife said yes, that was my moment because I knew I was marrying up. I knew I was marrying a much greater individual than I was. And there's fuel. We, we come to the altar, and there's fuel there. There's excitement because two mutual people with seven billion other people on planet Earth looked at each other and said, I choose you. Isn't there such power in getting chosen? And isn't there equally such power in being rejected? I saw an Instagram uh, this morning and I was like, I got to put this up here for a couple of different reasons. Your campus pastor, uh, Ronnie and Kara Johnson, who are just an incredible um, couple. This is a big weekend because this is their one year anniversary as the Littleton campus pastor. So at all campuses, will you clap for them and honor them? This is also, I think we were arguing backstage the math, but Ronnie and I together don't make up one brain. So we were still unsure. We are, I think it's the, this is the end of their fourth year. This is their fourth year. This weekend's also their anniversary, going into their fifth year. And yeah, we clap for that. Amazing. 
But I wanted to just really quick you sh just show you the power of two people choosing each other. This was the Instagram that Ronnie posted this morning. Clearly he married up. Like, have you seen Ronnie? You just, right? Ripped skinny jeans and a perm and his hair's different. He's got hair ADD. He'll have a buzzed hair next week. You watch, you Ronnie. Ronnie doesn't deserve Kara. Anyone he says that know us knows how much of a mess I am without you. I hit the biggest jackpot of my life when I met you. Somehow you decided it was in your best interest to spend the rest of your life with me. Personally, Ronnie says, I feel you could have done better. I fully concur, Ronnie. <laughs> he said, but you said yes, and now you're stuck. <laughs> Moving on, move the screen. He says, now that worked in my favor. My queen, right? I hear Barry White, my queen. <laughs> you're better every day. I pinch myself, that's just weird. I pinch myself when I think <laughs> about our lives. The adventure we have experienced, the fun we have had in the faithfulness of God. And then he says this, I'm fully believing this for Ronnie and Kara as well. I believe that year five of marriage will be the best year yet. And four was pretty dang sweet. Dang, sorry, Christian cuss word. Pretty dang sweet. Happy fifth anniversary, CJ. Hashtag lucked out. To which I say, Pastor Ronnie, you should have better theology than that. We don't have luck in the kingdom of God, right? <laughs> that wasn't luck. That was preparation, meeting opportunity. She said yes. Hashtag married up, hashtag favor ain't fair. And it's really not. Listen, favor in the kingdom of God is not fair, but listen to me, it is real. And Ephesians chapter one is trying to scream to us in the gospel before it says anything else that God wants to favor you with his grace. Do you know grace is the unmerited and undeserved favor of God? Favor's not fair, favor's not earned, favor's not deserved, favor's not merited. On our best day of Christian living, favor is always an absolute gift. And can I tell you something else? Jesus refers to us, the church, as his bride. And can I tell you, when he dropped a knee or got on the cross and said, will you marry me? And we looked at him and said, I will. Do you know what we were doing? We were marrying up, hashtag married up, right? That is the gospel. Why? Because the creator of the universe who is flawless and perfect without any dysfunction and without any problems and without any quirks and idiosyncrasies and sin patterns and personality problems, he looked at us with all of those things and said, would you marry me? Would you be mine? Would you be in covenant with me? God chose you, Red Rocks Church, and there's something so powerful about being chosen, but I also got to recognize this weekend that there's something so powerful about rejection. Look at Cain and Abel, right out of the shoots, the first sons of creation, right? Both of them gave an offering to God. One gave a grain offering and one gave a meat offering. And vegetarians, listen up. God accepted only one of them. <laughs> and it wasn't grain. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Woo! Preaching good. I want you to think about this, though, the power of rejection. God was not rejecting Cain when he came with the wrong offering. He was rejecting his offering. Cain was so taken back by rejection. Do you know what he did? And this seems melodramatic because most, if none of us in this room will ever do this, right? When we're rejected. But I just want you to know the human capacity when we experience rejection he murdered his brother eventually. He could not handle the comparison and he could not handle the rejection from the creator. Who can, right? God knows we can't. God, you know, he murdered his family 
because of being rejected by God. And this is why Paul, with a divine megaphone, before he says anything about rules and behavior and ethics and precepts and laws and how we should be as Christians, before he says any of that, he has to shout to us, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. Why? Because he knows it's the fuel for the soul to be everything that God created us to be so that we can live this life full. He knows. Think about David. You want to talk about playground PTSD? Think about his brothers. They all got lined up, and the great prophet Samuel goes, not you, not you, not you, not you, not you, not you. You have any other sons, right? Well, we got a teenager boy off on the hill. He's, he's a creative. He just plays his guitar most of the time and watches over the sheep. Surely not him. And they're like, no, I think he's the one, right? This is God's irony. And I want you to hear me. God did not pick David over his brothers because he loved David more than his brothers. Please understand that. God picked David to show the world through the lineage and through the story of King David that we would be talking about thousands of years later that he chooses everyone. His brothers could have been chosen. He goes, give me the most seemingly unpickable one in your family, and that's who I'm going to anoint king. Think of Joseph and the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. He's got 11 other brothers, and his dad comes with the birthright coat, the coat of many colors, and puts it on Joseph. And now you've got 11 other brothers with playground PTSD. And do you know what the human soul does when it feels rejection? It takes another family member, Joseph, and they beat the snot out of him. They throw him in a ditch, and they leave him for dead. That's the power of rejection because we don't know what to do with it. And when you don't know what to do with it, do you know what you'll do with rejection? You'll project it negatively onto other people in relationships. And this is the power of the gospel. This is Paul going, you don't have to live according to the rejections you've experienced in this lifetime. They don't have to define you. In fact, you can't let them define you because the creator of the universe, the only one that you know that you know that you know that you're gonna spend an eternity with forever, for billions of years, Upon billions of years, upon billions of years to infinity, you are going to be in the tangible, physical, felt presence of God. Do you understand that? Shouldn't his say over you matter more than anybody else? He's going to be the absolute focal point without distraction for an eternity. And he chose you. And Paul is trying to, to scream this to us, that, hey, this is your birthright before the foundations of the world. God knows everything about you. There's nothing you've done that can shock him enough to not choose you if you will by faith receive his saving work. Isn't that awesome news? Think about when Jesus came. And when he started his public ministry, the first thing he should have done when he started his public ministry, if I'm Jesus, which is why I'm not Jesus, is he should have gone to the temple and he should have said, where's your summa cum laude, your magna cum laude? Kids that are in rabbinical training, give me the top of the class. We got some work to do. I want them to follow me. And listen, Jesus doesn't love the guys, the fishermen, more than he loves the guys in the temple. He didn't reject the rabbinical trainees in the temple. He loved them equally. God is no respecter of persons. But instead, he went to some blue-collar fishermen Right? and said, will you follow me? I want to make you fishers of men. And what Jesus is saying in that moment is I can take what the world calls ordinary and insignificant and unimportant, and I can pick you. And when I pick you, there's fuel. And watch what these gentlemen do. All of them would eventually go to a martyr's death for that man, Jesus, simply because he looked at them and said, I choose you. Unsuspectingly, you choose me? 
And, and then just to get froggy with the world, the fourth guy he chooses, because see, he chose Peter and Andrew and James, these fishermen, right? They got their little fraternity now. They're comfortable, right? Do you know who the fourth guy he chooses is in the story? Matthew. Do you know what Matthew taxes on the Sea of Galilee? Fish. It's about to get froggy in that life group, right? <laughs> now all of a sudden you got one of the guys that is a part of their bloodline, the Jewish bloodline, but they work for Rome and they extort from you. So your family has less while Matthew has more. And Jesus says, I want you next. Why? Because he's trying to make a divinely ironic point to the world so that we understand you're choosable. Again, women and men at God Behind Bars, listen to me. You're choosable. It's God's high honor, knowing what you would do to put you behind those bars, to look at you and before the foundations of the world still say, let there be light. You're choosable, you're lovable. You're a saint, not because of anything you've done or not done, but because Jesus speaks it over your life. Let's take it a step further. I want you to think about the Apostle Peter for a minute. Okay, let's use him. He chooses 12 really unsuspecting guys to be his disciples, and then he chooses probably the most unsuspecting guy to lead the pack, right? Peter. At one point in the Gospels, Peter has this salvation moment. Jesus says, who do you say I am? And he says, I tell you, you're the son of man. And Jesus says, your name is no longer Simon, it's Peter. I'm changing your name. Peter means Petra, it means rock. And he goes, it's upon this rock that I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And he gives key, Peter and everyone else after him, he gives them the keys to the kingdom. And if you go on in the Gospels to continue to read, the very next thing that Jesus and Peter do chronologically in the Gospels is have a conversation where Peter, now that he's got the keys, thinks he can rebuke Jesus, and he rebukes Jesus, and Jesus literally says, get behind me, Satan. So chronologically, the next thing after Peter gives his life to Christ, and Christ says, not only are you, are you mine, but I'm giving you authority. I'm trusting you with something magnificent, Peter. I choose you. Within seconds, Peter's already be calling Satan. By, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the things of the Father in mind, right? And this just speaks to the absolute duplicity of our human hearts. The hypocrisy of your heart and my heart, right? When, when, when people look at the church and go, well, I don't go because they're just hypocrites. That's why we go, Right? That's why we go, because we, we want to worship someone that saved us out of our hypocrisy, not just past and present, but even future hypocrisy. We're just at the core duplicit, are we not? Let's be honest. Just Jekyll and Hyde. It's like one day just on the mountaintop for Jesus and the next minute. Read the Psalms of David. God called him a man after his own heart, and that's the most schizophrenic book you'll ever read. <laughs> right? There's just this, this hypocrisy, duplicity. And guess what? God is still on the throne. And you would have thought when, when Peter gets rebuked, Jesus would have said, hey, listen, you're still mine. I still love you. I'm that good, but I'm going to need to take the keys back. You're not driving anymore. You can be in the car. You're not driving anymore, right? We'll pick James or Andrew or John, my, love, you know, my favorite one, supposedly, right? Jesus doesn't do that. He still chooses Peter. One of the most precious and, and vulnerable and important moments in Jesus' life was right before he's about to go to the cross and he goes to a garden because he knows it's about to happen. And he takes the three pillars of the church and, and, and some of his best friends, Peter, James, and John. He says, would you come with me? And he goes this, would you stand watch while I go over and pray? 
Jesus prayed so passionately about the fact that he was about to take on the sin of the world on his shoulders, plus a physical execution by way of the cross, just to add something else to it. He prays so intensely that John records that he broke capillaries in the skin on his forehead and he started to drop uh, or drip sweat that was bloody. That's how intense and vulnerable of a moment it was for the Savior of the world and the three leaders of the free church of Jesus Christ, the ones who helped plan it and start it. Do you know what Jesus saw them do both times he went and looked for them? They were sleeping. And this just shouts to us, shouldn't the gospel leave that part out so that we would be better Christians? You know what that's shouting to us? In your weakness, Paul said, his power is made perfect. Jesus said, couldn't you watch with me for one hour on the most significant, vulnerable, difficult day of my life? Could you not keep watch for one hour? And the answer was, no, we're tired, we're weak, we're human, we don't have what you have. Are we fired? You trumping us? We fired? He says, no, keys, yours. Jesus would go on and, and, and the ultimate sin, the sin of all sins, the most crucial moment in history changes everything. Jesus goes to the cross three times. Peter denies knowing him, right? Three times. P Peter denies even knowing him. Just spent three and a half years with him, knowing him intimately. And Jesus looking at him and going, I don't just choose you to be with me. I choose you to run my church. Lead it, Peter. Three times he says, I don't even know this guy, right? You ever been there? And here, here's, here, let this bless you. The dinner they had a little bit before that happened, those denials, guess what Jesus said Peter would do? To his face, he goes, you're gonna deny me three times. Peter's like, I absolutely will not. I'm the rock. You gave me that name. That's my wrestler's name, right? I'm the rock, <laughs> right? Look what the rock is cooking. It's for my wrestler nerds, I love you. I'm the rock, I'm not gonna do that. That's, that's Judas stuff. He goes, no, you're going to deny me three times. You know why Jesus knew that? Because he knew it before the foundations of the world. And he already had Peter in mind. The same way he has you in mind. You understand that? He already knew. And, and there was a poise, a divine poise that Jesus had when he was saying that. There wasn't contention. There wasn't an argument. Jesus didn't, you know, dramatically throw, throw the table or throw some dishes and go, you're going to deny me three times on my most important day. It wasn't some big scene between the two of them where they win an Oscar. No, Jesus goes, hey, you're going to deny me. Why? He wasn't shocked by it. He's not shocked by what you're experiencing. He's not shocked by the rejection you've experienced. And listen to this. Some of you need to hear this. He's not shocked by the rejection you've given to people. And he still chooses you. He still chooses you. That's the goodness of the God we serve. And you know what I love about the story of Peter? It's my favorite thing. Band, you guys can go ahead at all campuses and come on up. Jesus knew something about Peter. Not just that he would deny him three times before the cross. Do you know what else he knew about Peter? Something that no one else knew that was around Peter. So they would make way harsher judgment on him than Jesus would. Jesus knew this, 67 AD. You know what that is? That was the time, if you fast forward, after Jesus had been long gone, that the apostle Peter, the denier, the one who Jesus at one point said, get behind me, Satan, the one who at one point cut off the ear of a soldier trying to defend Jesus, but total wrong tactic, right? 
That's what we Christians do. Good hearts, bad motives. I mean, good hearts, bad tactics. That's all of us on social media during the political season. All of us. Shameless plug. Good hearts, bad tactics. And Jesus has to pick up our mess. He picks up the ear and puts it back on him. You're still chosen. 67 AD, Jesus knew something about Peter that none of them knew. We now know. He had this in him from the beginning. He finally at one point was going to be martyred for being the leader of the free church called Christianity. Rome was going to make a point to the whole movement. So what better to do than to grab the leader of the movement and say, we're going to crucify this guy. And in 67 AD, the apostle Peter looks at them and says, if you crucify me, crucify me upside down because I will not be crucified in the likeness and the manner of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what fuels Jesus's mercy. He knows the worst of you. I've said that multiple times, but I end with this. He knows the best of you. He knows more about the goodness on the inside of you and the potential goodness on the inside of you than you even know about yourself right now. You may not be living the 67 AD life right now, but listen to me, it's there. And that's what God chooses to speak over you. That's what God chooses to work from. See, I guarantee all of Peter's friends and family members, and especially the onlookers, constantly judged and hated on him because of his mistakes and could not fathom why God would choose him to do something so great. The whole time, Jesus knew 67 AD. If you guys only knew what this guy was gonna do to finish out his story for the kingdom of God. Why? Because he got chosen. He got forgiven. Do you know the last thing Jesus did? This is so important you get this, Red Rock Church. The last thing Jesus did before he ascended to heaven, he came out of the grave, he conquered death. And you know what Peter had done? He punished himself for his sins. We do that. He disqualified himself. It says he went back to fishing for fish instead of men. You know what Jesus does? One of the first phrases when he's out of the grave, where's Peter? And if Peter could have heard that, he'd been like, oh, shoot. Oh, man, this is right. I'm, in, I'm done. I'm dead. You know, what he, you know why he said that? Because he wanted to go and find him to forgive him. Peter's out in the boat fishing, and you know what it says Jesus was doing on the shore until they recognized him? Cooking them breakfast. If that's not an entry point to forgiveness, sorry, my love language is food. Some bacon, some eggs. Turkey bacon is kosher. Biscuits and gravy. Turkey bacon. Voodoo long john donuts. I need to go on. <laughs> He's disarming them. You're not gonna cook breakfast for your betrayer and your denier, right? And he's cooking a breakfast. And the only question he has is, do you love me? Do you love me? That's it. Peter goes, that, yeah, of course. I didn't deny you because I don't love you. I denied you because I was scared, right? Almost every one of our bad and less than stellar and sinful moments isn't because you really hate God. It's because you're scared. Fear makes us do crazy things, right? But perfect love, Red Rocks, casts out all fear. And this is a series about perfect love. This is six weeks of going, you're a saint, you're chosen, you're holy, you're blameless, you're adopted with the rights of an heir, you're sealed with these promises in the Holy Spirit. Why? Because God just chose you. Nothing more, nothing less. Let that trump the rejection that your hearts walked into at all of our campuses. Would you guys stand? I wanna pray for us and we're gonna worship. I wanna ask one thing. If you're in here at any of our campuses and you say, you know what, I've never fully processed it. I'm still kind of like maybe a kid on a playground. I've never fully uh, 
realize the depths of rejection and the dysfunctional behavior and thinking and mindset that it's brought into my relationship with God and, 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 and definitely my relationships with other people. And I keep seeming to sabotage relationships. And maybe just maybe it's because I'm protecting myself from rejection. If that's specifically you and with every head bowed, because I want this to, I want this to be easy for you. But would you just say, hey, I want healing. I wanna know who I am in Jesus. Would you just at every campus proudly raise your hand right now? This is why we exist. We wanna pray with you. We wanna worship with you. You know what? The, 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 what we're gonna do when you've raised your hand is we're about to sing a song that I specifically picked for this weekend at all campuses. And it says, I am a child of God about 3,700 times before we're done singing it. And what I want you to do for all of you who raise your hand, in fact, we would all be good to do this. I want you to sing this song and until you feel the truth and the beauty and the weight being lifted off your heart, I want you to continue to sing that. And then when you start to, if, you, if you're comfortable doing this, when you start to feel that you really believe what you're singing, that you really are a child of God and that he chose you, as much in spite of you as he chose you because of you, would you just at some point during the song, would you hold up your hands to God, to the sky and surrender just as a symbol to say, God, I want freedom. Would you make me free from the rejection that I have? Would you give me a, a, a concrete understanding and revelation that I am chosen in you? Can we do that, Heavenly Father, in the next few minutes? Would you pour out your spirit in this place and at all campuses? Would you do something so sweet as we begin to recite one of the birthrights that we are a child of the King. It's in your name we do this and we pray, Jesus. Amen. At all campuses, let's worship.